You are listening to The Concierge on Monocle Radio. Coming up on today's programme, we get some top tips from editorial director Tyler Relay as he touches down in Hong Kong. From Brazil to New Zealand, we put your questions to our concierge service. So good they named it twice. We try out the Venice Venice Hotel. This contradiction and juxtaposition of old and new is at the heart of the Venice Venice Hotel philosophy and continues throughout the 42 art-filled bedrooms. Big Mama's Victor Luger is in town not to open one, but two new restaurants, and he is subject to our travel interrogator. I'm French, and I cook Italian food in London with quite a big bunch of Italian people, but still I'm French, and I think we've always looked at Italy the way you look at someone you love. That's all to come on The Concierge in association with Allianz Partners. Welcome to The Concierge on Monocle Radio with me, Robert Bounds. And we're going to start the show in Hong Kong today, where tourism is expected to boom again, with an estimated 26 million visitors planning to mix it in the territory. To celebrate its reopening, as well as the grand opening of our very own Monocle shop at Hong Kong International Airport, our editorial director, Tyler Brule, spoke to this programme's producer, Tom Webb, about what travellers to the region can expect. It's incredible just to see the amount of development that is going on. So it almost seemed like yesterday that they were talking about this third runway. And we know whenever there's a discussion anywhere in the world about the addition of a runway, this takes a considerable amount of time. Heathrow being a good example of will there ever be a third runway at the airport. But there, lo and behold, third runway done, land on the third runway. And around Hong Kong airport, you see of course, more land reclamation going on, and at the same time, just more terminals being built, more shopping facilities being built land side. And I have to say, you know, quite efficient. It's always one of those moments when you land at the airport, the big airport thing, oh my God, I hope we don't get one of those outer gates. I was very lucky. I was literally, we almost were nose up right at uh, Customs and Immigration to breeze through and um, really was not a problem. On your way out, will you be able to experience any of the lounges that are popping up? Outbound depends. It's, it's going to be an early start to Bangkok, and it is the fresh start. So might be a lounge moment. I think this is one of the interesting things about Hong Kong at the moment is, of course, the airport is, you know, is not at full capacity. Cathay Pacific is not at full capacity as an airline. So it's not sort of quite the crush that one would normally expect. Nevertheless, I am hoping that uh, I can go and sample at least a business class lounge. The good news as well, too, I was talking to someone from at Cafe. They're reopening their first class lounge, which is not very far from where our shop is, by the way, out at sort of the Y point around the gates in the early 70s at Hong Kong Airport. Uh, so that should be opening soon. Anyway, I, let's see. It, it's always a matter of uh, yeah, how how late or how or maybe how early in the morning the day was because uh, there, there's an event or two to be attending here in Hong Kong. So on the topic of the shop, of course, over 10 years ago, you opened the shop in Wan Chai. Why did you choose that location and what should people check out when they're there? Well, we chose Wan Chai, I mean, partly because, well, Wan Chai almost chose us. We had a very good relationship with Swire, you know, the multinational conglomerate based out of London and Hong Kong. And we've been working with them. And, and they suggested a space. They were in the midst of really regenerating the area around Star Street. So it was really sort of a meeting of minds between us and the client that we, we found the space at St. Francis Yard. 
And it's exciting because we're going to be looking at an overhaul of that space right now, expanding it and, and pushing back a little bit. So office space reduces, retail area increases. Maybe we'll start serving coffees. You never know. But that is something that we're looking at at the moment. And I think within, you know, within our area, we've got, uh, I think, probably one of the most loved places is just a wonderful little noodle cafe across the street, super old school. So when you visit us, you only have to sort of look out the front off to the right. There's certainly a favorite place to go and get an amazing prawn rice that they do, which is a bit of a, a bit of a classic. And that whole area, I think, is, is just, I think, fantastic around St. Francis Yard, how it's developed and that it has this incredible neighborhood feel. I was just there now. School was getting out. You've got parents coming to pick up their kids. You've got, obviously, a lot of tourists and Blue Bottle fans. There's a Blue Bottle coffee across the, across the street from us now. So super well served. And I think one of the great things about Hong Kong, and it's maybe been a little bit of a comment over the past two trips I've done over these, these months, is that it, it, it still feels a little bit sleepy, or has been feeling a bit sleepy. But I also have to say every trip, it also just feels that much busier and buzzier as well. And that's exactly why we, we like Hong Kong. It's really, I think, part of the, the definition of the place. Where are we speaking to you from? Where are you staying? Right now, I'm speaking to you from the Rosewood Kowloon side, looking out over Victoria Harbour. And it is just an absolutely beautiful early, you could almost say early summer, but uh, I guess you could say late spring day, a rather clear Hong Kong as well. And Rosewood have done just really an outstanding job. This uh, has to be probably seen as their global flag, flagship property. Of course, Rosewood, a brand which really originally grew up in the United States, but now Hong Kong owned Sonia Cheng at the helm of this business. And interesting just to watch, you know, yet another group, because here you think about a city, Shangri-La headquartered here, Mandarin headquartered here, Peninsula headquartered here, and now you've got Rosewood as another brand also emerging out of the city as well. And then you've got you've also got Fullerton. So it's quite remarkable then, despite maybe, you know, the the negative feelings, maybe the negative aura that has been slightly around Hong Kong, question marks about is this going to continue to be a city which is, you know, is is famous and built around luxury brands. And I think it's a firm answer, yes, four of the world's leading luxury hotel groups happen to be headquartered in the city. So we're going to do a very quick fire Q&A, if you don't mind. I'm going to fire some very, very quick questions to you. Favourite hotel view? Favourite hotel view could very much be where I am now. Victoria Harbour is always amazing. It's great by day, but I think what's even more you know, stunning and if you're on the Kowloon side as well, looking back into Hong Kong, I think you know, probably many of our listeners are used to staying on the Hong Kong side, looking back to Kowloon. But I think there's actually something really magical about looking back into Hong Kong itself. Top retail shop? Top retail shop anywhere in the world? Uh, well, I would have to vote for Isatan in Tokyo. I think you need to do a one-stop shop for menswear, great bottle of wine, gifts, houseware, whatever it may be. I think it's hard to beat Isatan in Shinjuku. And the table you'd book for a big lunch? Um, I don't like a big lunch personally because uh, one needs a nap afterwards. But if I had to take four or five people out, I would um, probably go for, it's hard to beat Kronenhalle, not very far, of course, from our HQ in Zurich. It always pleases. And I think there's something about having a table in a restaurant where you're known, where you're going to get a fantastic level of service. So, yeah, I'd have to vote for Kronenhalle, Zurich. And thinking of breakfast, the most delicious hotel buffet. 
Uh, goodness, most delicious hotel buffet. Not enormous, but it's well done. It doesn't sort of speak to the whole world in terms of choice. It's very Germanic. But I would say two places come to mind. Uh, the Hotel Bachmeier Weissach on Tegensee so in Bavaria. And I would probably say that the other really good breakfast is also going to be a Bavarian one as well in Munich. And that would be at the Hotel Cortina. Lovely. Thank you. And just to end with one of our listeners, they have a question for a upcoming trip to Hong Kong. We've covered a lot of the food and drink scene, but Peter Faulkner from the United States asks, what sites do you suggest when in Hong Kong for the weekend? I would say now probably being over Kowloon side uh, and to, to be able to go to what is really evolving into museum district. So I think to go to the modern art museum, I think what's been developed with K11, I would then make my way to probably Rosewood for a lunch or a drink after that. But it's just amazing to see how really the whole art district of the city really starts to come good. And it's an area that sort of came good in the middle of the pandemic. And now it's wide open for all to visit. My thanks to Tyler Brule speaking to Monocle's Tom Webb. And next up, our concierge desk is open for business. And now to our very own Little Black Book, the part of the programme where we look to our correspondents around the globe to answer your questions. The concierge desk is open for business. And first up, listener Emily Much has this question about Brazil. Hi, Monaco. I'm going to Sao Paulo in Rio. Any architectural highlights beyond the regular Bobardi elements that are a must-see? Also, any good food or drink recommendations? Obrigada. And the brilliant Fernando Augusto Pacheco, our resident Brazilian advisor on all things cultural and tourism and all things in between, is with me in the studio on the concierge. Faye, lovely to have you on the programme. Lovely to be here as well, especially talking about my hometown. Yeah. So, I mean, take it away. We're going to Sao Paulo and Rio. Um, So let's start with Sao Paulo and let's get a few pocket highlights, places to stay, perhaps places for food and drink and a bit of a bit of a wander, perhaps. And I love that she said she doesn't want uh, Lina Bobardi recommendations, so I'm not going to mention, although there's plenty of beautiful <laughs> yeah. uh, things by Lina Bobardi there. But you know what, Rob? I think Sao Paulo is an underappreciated city when it comes to architecture. Of mm. course, it's harder to love compared to Rio, for example, but I think there's some excellent examples of modernism. So I think if you are interested in Brazilian modernism, you have to go to Sao Paulo. It's not just about Brasilia and Rio. I would start, if you like, a green space in a city at Parque Ibirapuera. It's our central park. It's the biggest, largest green space in the city. And in the middle of it, there's the Auditorio do Ibirapuera, which was designed by Oscar Niemeyer, of course. Mm -hmm. So it's beautiful, kind of white walls, and there's kind of a a red marquise, and it's quite round curves, like Oscar Niemeyer likes. And at the moment, they host cultural events. But to be honest, you don't need, even, even if it's closed, it's fine, because you can see it from the outside. You can admire it from afar. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Uh, and if you are interested in modernist architecture, Sao Paulo is brilliant for that. Go downtown. It's an area that, you know, it's being revitalized. It's a bit difficult, because in my opinion, it's one of the prettiest areas of Sao Paulo. It can also be a bit dangerous. So there's a lot of things. So you have the best and the worst of Sao Paulo in the same neighborhood. But there's a wonderful building. I mean, if you are an architecture nerd, 
do go there is the Edificio Renata Sampaio Ferreira. It's by an architect called Oswaldo Bratki. And the whole building is made of breezy blocks. So for me, that describes Brazilian architecture so well. It's quite concrete-like at the same time, but beautiful. That's a bit of an offbeat choice, but I think she might like it. I actually. like that. Where else would listeners get a recommendation to go and look at some modernist breeze blocks in downtown São Paulo? Okay, so, so if you're there at yeah. this building, just keep walking. You will see the Copan, which is, again, designed by Oscar Myers. It's this huge kind of concrete, again, curved building the city. And what I like about it, and it's quite rare to see it in Sao Paulo these days, is that on the bottom floor of the, of the building, there's some shops, there are, so you, there's a sense of community of people living in this building as well. And nearby, there's some excellent restaurants. She was asking also about food. I think, can I, I think I can hear Emily's uh, tummy rumbling, yes. Yeah, and can, can I be honest, Rob, I know, it's, I mean, this is actually not controversial at all. Sao Paulo is the, one of the best food cities, in my opinion, in South America, perhaps the world. Yeah. Uh, and a Casa do Porco, which is five minutes from that building that I just mentioned, is constantly elected one of the best restaurants in the world. As you say, it's the house of the pig. So everything <laughs> is connected to pork, yeah. to pork meat, but it's delicious. It's by Chef Janaina Rueda. She even stopped by at Monaco a few years ago. I mean, she's brilliant. They do it so creatively. And I, I don't think you can actually book. So you might have to wait outside, but it's fine. They'll serve capirinhas and... You there know, are worse places to kill time. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I'm going to be checking to the Fasano, I think, in Jardim Botanico. Is that the area with it, that wonderful old barman who I hope is still with us? I'm not sure if he is, but it's a legendary spot. And it's a wonderful place for an aperitif, isn't it? It's a legendary at the neighborhood of Jardim's. It's Fasano. And that's the, that was the, their first hotel. I know they have hotels in Salvador, in Rio. But I think the one in Sao Paulo has that kind of very chic, understated. Uh, it's very Sao Paulo in my opinion. It's lovely. And I think I'm still allowed back to the one in Sao Paulo, actually, which makes a nice refreshing change from the Absolutely. one in Rio. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, I'll go to the one in Sao Paulo. I think, yeah. I think it, to my opinion, is the best one. And actually, even I stay there. I know I, I usually stay with my parents in Sao Paulo, but I said, you know, I need a night at the Fasano. And they opened the Emporio Fasano now, Rob. So it's, again, like a very short walk from the hotel where you can buy some good pasta, good kind of produce that they make it. It's from their own brand. Um, it's beautiful stuff. We've just got time to talk about Rio. We can't really leave Emily hanging without a few little tips on Rio de Janeiro. Faye. Well, I think you have to go to Parque Lage. It's beautiful. You have a beautiful view to Christ the Redeemer there. It used to be a private house, actually. But more recently, again, they have a restaurant, they have a cultural space. And, of course, there's like a, some accesses to a, a walk in the middle of the rainforest as well. It looks beautiful. Parque Lage, of course. You have to go to the Maracana Stadium. And I think that's an yeah. iconic. I mean, even if you don't like football, that's a place to go. And I think the Maracana looks very good now. Uh, since Brazil hosted the World Cup in 2014, the Olympics in 2016, it's looking good. It's iconic. You know, you have to go there as well. And more modernism. I mean, you've, maybe you've been there, Rob, the Contemporary Art Museum Niterói. Mm. That's which, the Niemeyer, the Niemeyer, isn't it? It's it looks beautiful. like a UFO. And again, <laughs> short trip to Niterói. They're connected, you know, to Rio. So those are my tips in Rio. Um, it's beautiful stuff. I just sort of went on a little weird sort of I had a little moment there and was wandering, wandering around the streets of San Paolo. I was going to Casa do Porco mm. and uh, I was um, 
negotiating with the uh, concierge at the Fasana in Rio as well. Just please let me back in just one more time. And, and if it's sold out, go to the Copacabana Palace, oh, which is bad. celebrating 100 years. I shall see you by the pool. Exactly. <laughs> um, it's always wonderful to have Fernando Augusto Pacheco on the programme. Faye, thank you very much. Next, we have another question from an anonymous listener. We are visiting New Zealand in January for 19 days and have been there twice and have been to the South and North Island and have done most touristy things, but would like suggestions to more special, less known areas and local spots. And Monocle Radio's Deputy Head of Production, David Stevens, has the lowdown on where. Kia ora. you've picked an ideal time to take a New Zealand summer. If you've already experienced the beauty of the wild south, I'd suggest aiming for some of the North Island's less known places to dine out and dive in, starting in Auckland, where you'll more than likely touch down. To start, make the most of the central city's dining scene, perhaps at the relaxed but sophisticated seafood spot Depot, which may introduce you to a few new and delicious species. Don't overcommit in the country's largest city, though. There's a Pacific coastline to be enjoyed just a couple of hours' drive south on the Coromandel Peninsula, including the not-so-well-kept secret Cathedral Cove. Taupo is an adventure lover's dream next stop. Despite being a tourist hotspot, there are quieter attractions to enjoy, such as wild swimming at the geothermal hot water pools at Spa Park, as well as plenty of lakeside activities. The Kapiti Coast is perfect for a sheltered seaside dip with sunbathing, walking, wildlife and great tasting food available all along this stretch of coast. If you want to eat like a local, Waikanae Beach can offer a classic lunchtime meat pie at the Old Beach Bakery and fish and chips in the evening from Long Beach Tavern. With trains regularly heading to the capital, Wellington, you can take day trips from this part of the country to sample arguably the best coffee, culture and craft beer around. But stay in the sunny smaller towns as much as you can. That's where New Zealand summer truly resides. And if you have a question for the concierge, please do write to us. Send your questions to concierge at monocle.com. My thanks then to Fernando Augusto Prosecco and David Stevens. Next up, we're off to Venice for the in-crowd. Just like the Monocle team, Allianz Partners is committed to helping you build exceptional experiences. Allianz Partners' reputation for excellence and the continuous drive to innovate means the business is uniquely equipped to accompany its partners and customers with their ever-changing travel needs. So get out there and visit the places, enjoy the experiences and meet the people changing the world of hospitality for the better. Allianz Partners. Get the most out of your experience with peace of mind. Few new hospitality openings have generated as much buzz in Italy recently as the Venice Venice Hotel, which opened its doors last year. With an eye-popping modern art collection and one of the best locations in town, Monocle's Charlotte MacDonald Gibson tours the hotel, making waves on the Grand Canal. In Venice, there is certainly no shortage of historical buildings, or indeed hotels, which makes it difficult for new openings to stand out from the crowd. However, founders of fashion brand The Golden Goose, Alessandro and Francesca Gallo, have navigated that challenge by buying and restoring one of the oldest and most storied hotels in the city. The Venice Venice Hotel is housed in the Cademosto, a 13th century palazzo by the Rialto Bridge right on the Grand Canal. The building is a legendary address in hospitality. 
From the 16th to the 18th century, it housed the Leon Bianco, the first building in Venice with a hotel license. It was a key stop on the Grand Tour, visited by luminaries including Turner, Shelley, Ruskin and Rossetti. The Venice Venice Hotel has embraced this connection with its historical culture, filling the rooms and common spaces with contemporary art in unique collaborations with the artists. The hotel opened its doors last year, complete with a design store on the ground floor and a restaurant and bar with a terrace open to all directly on the Grand Canal. This April, the transformation was complete, with 22 new rooms opening in an adjoining building and the inauguration of the spa Felix Anima. I got a tour of the hotel and its astonishing art collection from Bianca Bonaldi, the arts and crafts specialist. We start at the water entrance, where the unique Venetian light plays on the marble. I would say that light is the most important thing. The hotel has been designed for the light that is coming in. Those are all portraits of our suppliers. So you can sit down and eat and see where the ingredients are coming from. And also, it's again a way how to give importance to the people that are working with us. So you can see their faces and they are proud presenting what they do. Most of them are doing that since many generations and they are part of the hotel. It's important to the people that helped us with this project. We then walk through the restaurant to the shop, which was once the water entrance for goods. When you enter from the walking entrance, you find a shop, then this exposition and display of, of our items. And then you arrive, see, through the canal, walking through the canal, you see the light coming in, you walk through it, and you find our restaurant. Our restaurant is in the common part of the hotel, of course, and it's on a terrace that gives you the idea of floating on the Grand Canal. It has no boundaries, it has no fences, so you really have the illusion of floating on water. You can see the Alto, you have gondolas passing by, and you can see the color of the water and the reflection of the water throughout all the day, from breakfast until late evening. We mount the marble staircase, the original entrance to the building that has been restored to an authentically austere look. At the top is a huge, unique mirror molded from the red clay the owners found in the foundations during renovations. This mirror in front of us, this is one of the most important projects, one of the most peculiar for sure, because it has been realized with the clay that we found during the renovation beneath the palazzo. So this clay stayed there for 500 years and collected all the time the history of the palazzo. When we found it, we call this artist Paul Polognato, a ceramist. He took the frames of the Venetian mirrors, the original ones, and molded this material, then cut the molds and recomposed this huge mirror that is three meters per two through a work of contemporary art in which the materials have more than 500 years 
and wear from more than 500 years in this place. On the first floor is the Bitter Club, with shimmering floor-to-ceiling tapestries. We are here at the Bitter Club, that is the bar of the hotel. It's located in the first noble floor, and it has a fantastic view on the Grand Canal. So I think that this is the most post-Venetian place in the hotel, and you can see it as the perfect post-Venetian example. Because you have this mix of elements that are recreating the vision of Alessandro in a room. So you have the natural element, the light that is coming from the windows. And from the windows you can see outside, you're in the middle of the Grand Canal, you can see the Alto Bridge, you can see the market, you can see the Vaporettos, gondolas, taxi and boats floating on water and moving. And then you're entering tapestry pattern, an arazzo, the biggest arazzo ever created, I think, right now. So this tapestry that is covering all the walls, it's designed by Francesco Simetti, a great Italian artist living in New York, and was realized by Giovanni Bonotta collection, that has a great tradition in textiles, and it's representing the Venetian history through its iconographic elements, but with a very contemporary approach. So you can see that the floral element is insisted, a lot of the faces are veiled, and the mix of natural threads and metallic threads, it's giving you a sense of three-dimensional work. So throughout the day, with the light, it changes and it also moves. This contradiction and juxtaposition of old and new is at the heart of the Venice Venice Hotel philosophy and continues throughout the 42 art-filled bedrooms. Staying at the hotel is like sleeping in a gallery under original works by Cy Twombly, Bruce Nauman and Arnold Rayner. It is this creative exchange, staying true to the original energy of Venice, that Bianca feels encapsulates the avant-garde spirit of the Venice Venice Hotel. Thank you to Charlotte McDonald Gibson taking on for the team there at the Venice Venice Hotel. Next up, our travel interrogation begins. French entrepreneurs Victor Luger and Tigran Sedou founded Big Mama Group with a desire to bring back all the warmth and generosity of traditional small trattorias in Italy. The pair opened their first restaurant, East Mama, in Paris in 2015. And since then, the business has swelled to include a spot in Madrid, 10 across France, and now two restaurants in London. To celebrate the opening of Jacuzzi and Carlotta, Victor popped by Midori House to tell us how he achieved it. Big Mama is this group of Italian restaurants that we started 10 years ago at the time back in France. And one after the other, we had great, immense fun, I would say, to open another restaurant and then another. And now today, it's quite a few restaurants across Europe that try to give you the cheapest, fastest alternative to a trip to Italy. What we try to do in these restaurants is not just feeding people. We're passionate about Italy, and the reason why we're passionate about Italy is every time I go to Italy, it makes me feel so much stuff. I've got so much emotions, and this is what we try to share in our restaurants. Of course, with the food, but then with the design, then with the atmosphere, then by 
evoking all these memories we, the team, have with Italy, from the recipe of a grandmother to this tile on the wall that we spotted during a trip in Sicily. I think this is our job. I'm French and I cook Italian food in London with quite a big bunch of Italian people, but still I'm French and I think we've always looked at Italy the way you look at someone you love. You kind of unconsciously magnify some of the traits of their personality and you ignore others. And I think it would be very arrogant to say that we vehiculate just what's Italian. We, we, we tell our story with Italy and I think it's a love story. Maybe also because we're not Italian <laughs> and we still look at Italy with the, with the eye of love. Jacuzzi first is this incredible encounter with a former bank. And I vividly remember when the team and I, we visited this place for the first time. The volume was so spectacular. And I think it's an Edwardian bank, but everything about it felt like an Italian palace in the center of High Street Kensington. And we were absolutely struck by that. And we probably visit maybe 60 sites a year just in London. And this was absolutely one of a kind. And I remember this ceiling, which was, the whole ceiling was designed like a ceiling of a palazzo. And it was definitely love at first sight. Then we got lucky that the deal went through and it was something that we could work out. But it's really about the volume first. And from that volume stem quite a lot of memories that we have in these huge, incredible houses in Italy because you're invited by your friend there, because one of your suppliers has inherited this palazzo here in Umbria, in Veneto, in Emilia-Romagna. And so this is the string that we've sort of pulled, trying to build what we had to express in this restaurant. Carlotta is sort of, it's not the opposite of jacuzzi, but Carlotta is, first it's in Marlborough High Street. As a Frenchman in London, I've always loved Marlborough High Street. It reminds me a little of Paris, maybe, or Firenze. It's way more of an intimate restaurant. It has all these very small nooks and intimate tables, and there is a vibe to that restaurants, which is like not a, a sort of a long corridor with so many pockets here and there. So it has a very different potential for design. I think the design that the team has done is absolutely spot on and stunning. It's probably my favorite restaurant out of 25, which is a great feeling to have after, after quite a few restaurants. And the menu, again, is a totally different inspiration. For many reasons, since we've been doing restaurants in the last 10 years, we've made quite a few friends in the US and we've traveled there quite a lot and we've discovered the real nature of the American take on Italian cuisine, which is actually very different from what you see in the movies or in the series. And there is a celebration of that as well in this restaurant. It's a very, very humble and personal take that we have on Italian-American cuisine. And again, I think it fits very well with the design. There is a coherence to it that I'm very, very excited to share with the Londoners. That was the estimable Victor Luger, co-founder and CEO of the Big Mama Group. And that is it for today's programme. My thanks to our guests, Tyler Brule and Victor Luger. Our producer today was Tom Webb, our researcher, Monica Lillis, and our studio manager was Steph Chongu. If you have a question for the concierge, please do drop us an email on concierge at monocle.com. Join us next time when we'll be in sunny Lisbon. Until then, I've been Robert Bound. Thank you very much for tuning in and happy travels. Thank you.